But have a seat now. I'll just let you know a, a couple of things before we look to God's Word. Uh, number one, as always, we have uh, at the new year, we have new printouts of uh, the Bible reading plan uh, that we put together. Uh, I spent years working through seven-day-a-week Bible reading plans that would lead to um, my getting behind and a great deal of frustration. Uh, and so I, I took a Bible reading plan that I uh, found great value in and uh, reduced it, um, got this idea from someone else, actually reduced it to a five-day-a-week Bible reading plan. And so uh, they're out there in the lobby. There's some videos that help you understand uh, the text as you read through it. Uh, but, but grab a Bible reading plan, read through the Bible this year. If you've never done that, uh, there's an immense amount of joy waiting for you in doing that. Um, there's some great resources to help you uh, understand what you're reading there as well. Um, and, uh, and, and if you, if you just read through, read, read what's in there five days a week, uh, you'll get through the Bible in a year. I would highly, highly encourage that. As Bill mentioned, we're having a little, uh, a bit of a different plan. We had initially said we're going to do two identical services, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. And generally that will be true. The music will be the same. I don't script my sermons. I never preach the same sermon twice as a result. So uh, who knows what the Holy Spirit will do. Uh, there, but we'll be taking a look at John 3.16 in both of those services. However, Saturday night will be a candlelight service, and Sunday morning we have the, the privilege of, of now having a baptism, and, and maybe three. Um, it'll, it'll be kind of a dual language thing, as most of the baptisms, in fact, all of the baptisms are coming from our Spanish language services, but uh, we'll open up with an explanation of what baptism is, uh, and then we'll turn things over to, uh, to Edgar to uh, to baptize a few individuals. I was reflecting on the beauty of that. I would highly encourage us all to be there for, for several reasons. Number one, uh, baptism is not just an individual thing. Baptism is a body thing. And so I would say it's not just our privilege to be present at a baptism. It's our responsibility to be present at baptisms, to, to connect ourselves uh, in, with someone. And I, I've said repeatedly, and I'll continue to say, when we celebrate communion, we are making the fundamental statement that the many are one, that we are one body in Christ as we partake of one bread. And baptism is the statement that the one is part of the many. Communion says that the many are one, and baptism says that the one is part of the many. And it would be a failure on our part, I believe, to not be present as we welcome the individuals into the body of the church. And so I think we have a responsibility uh, to be here for that. 10.30 next week. It'll be wonderful. I'm really excited about it. Let's turn our attention now to our text, John 1. If you recall from last week, we're, we're in a series on gifts, not spiritual gifts in terms of, of what we see in 1 Corinthians, but, uh, but we, we kind of took uh, John 3.16 as our uh, main text for this Christmas season. That God loved the world and he gave. And gift giving is a big part of our Christmas traditions for most of us. And that is true also of God, that he gave us his son. I did a word study on the word give in the book of John, and uh, it was incredibly profound. I thought that what I preached on last week, that God from eternity past, as we saw not only in John, but also in uh, in in um, Titus and Second Peter that God or Second Timothy that God has given us as a gift to His Son that we're part of 
what God gives. It's not just that God gives to us, but that God has given us to his son. And this, was, uh, this is profound to me, profound to me that God would give me a sinner as a gift to his son, as the reward of his suffering. And yet it has delighted God to do that. It has delighted him to give us as a gift to his son, and it has delighted his son to receive us as a gift. And I thought that would be the most profound gift that we looked at until I started digging into John chapter 1 today, or this week, and, and that we're looking at today. And what I saw here was equally profound and a little bit shocking to me. Before we take a look at today's gifts, I want to keep this in context. John opens his, his gospel here by explaining to us uh, not the birth of Christ. In fact, John does not mention the birth of Christ at all. You have to go to Matthew and Luke to get the, the full uh, account of Jesus' birth. John goes back even further than that and explains to us that Jesus is the pre-existent and eternal Son of God. In the beginning are words that are, are intended to draw us back to, John, uh, to Genesis chapter 1. And John tells us in the beginning was the word. And recently I mentioned that John used this word, word, this particular word uh, for word here as logos. Uh, it was used by Greek philosophers to talk about the thing that caused all other things. The thing that was the very first of all things. So in the beginning, before the earth was formed, was the word. And the Word was with God, that is, the Father, and the Word was God. He was not only eternally existent as, as God, he was eternally existent as the Son of God. He was God and was with God. He was in the beginning, the very beginning of all things, with God. Now here's where this gets really important. All things were made through him. There are some faiths out there who, denying the Trinity, would, would teach us that Jesus was the first of the things that the Father made, and that after God the Father made God the Son, all other things were made by the Son, except John absolutely refutes that idea. He says, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Nothing that was made was made apart from Christ, including Christ himself. He is the eternally existent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And he came to earth as light. The light shines in the dark. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 4, in him was life. If he is the maker of all things, he is the giver of all life. It should not surprise us that in him is life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I often see, especially amongst older generations, as the world looks a little different than what you were used to or I was used to some years ago, we begin to be prone to think that the darkness is winning. We would do well to be reminded that Neither social media nor the news are good sources to inform our fear. Scripture should inform our fears. And we're reminded here that the light of Christ, the eternal light of Christ that is life for men, has come to earth 
in a baby that we celebrate at Christmas, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, and in fact cannot, overcome it. He then shifts John uh, to uh, a witness. He, he tells us who Jesus is, and then quickly there's this abrupt shift to show us a witness to the things that he is saying. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not the same John. This is John the Baptist, or maybe better, John the Baptizer. Uh, there's no connection between what it means to be a Baptist church today and John the Baptist. Uh, uh, it, I mean... Baptism is a connection, I guess, but we're not named after John. He is the baptizer who came about baptizing people, preparing them for Christ. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He came to bear witness to who Christ is, that Christ was the light, that he came to shine in the darkness. He came as a witness in order that we might believe. He was not the light. We'll get to points in the Gospel of Matthew as we continue on where people think Jesus may have been John the Baptist. But John here is clear that Jesus is not John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the light that came into the world. He was simply the one who came to announce that light. And he came to bear witness about the light. And then we come to really what we're going to focus on today, and that is verses 9 through 13. The true light that is Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And so let's take a closer look today at this passage and the gift that God has given us in Christ. Again, last week we saw that God gave us in John chapter 6 to his son. Today we see first the gift. I don't have outlines for you in your worship folder, but I'll just give you the headings here. First is the gift. And the gift that has been given us is the right to become children of God. Now, this is what was so shocking to me. We frequently talk in our house, particularly dependent upon our children's behavior, about the difference between rights and privileges. A right is something that is due you as a person given life by God and created in his image. And so we don't deprive our children of food or clothing or air or shelter or dignity. We, we don't deprive them of those things that are inherently given to them by God. Those are rights of all people because they exist in the image of God. However, some things like sports or other extracurricular activities, sweets and candy and treats and, and, and uh, electronic devices, who knows what it may be, these are not rights. These are privileges. And I, I tend to think of salvation not as a right, but as a privilege. Not something that God was required to give me, and he's not required to give it. And yet, the text still says that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, not the privilege, the right 
to become children of God. The Declaration of Independence declares that people are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Those who wrote the Declaration of Independence believed that there were some who by very virtue of being created in the image of God deserved to be, tr- to, to be uh, privileged, or not privileged, but deserved to receive certain rights that could not be taken away. I think they rightly understood that when God declares that he has or will give something to his people, it is no longer a privilege. Because when God says he will do something, here's a a thought for us today. Uh, This is why scripture, I think, speaks so much to hope. Because when it comes to God, unlike any of the rest of us, The promise of something is as certain as the actual receiving of the thing promised. Let me say that again. When it comes to God, the thing promised is as certain as the actual receiving of the thing promised. Because I might promise to do something with you or for you. I might promise to give something to you. But the reality is I'm not promised another second. I'm not promised tomorrow. I could tell you tomorrow I'll come over and help you with something. But between now and then, I might might die. I might be hit by a car. I might have a massive heart attack. Who knows? I'm not promised tomorrow. And so when I tell you that I will do something for you or I will give you something, it's not certain until you actually receive it. But when God says he will give something, there is no power that can thwart. There is no enemy that can detract. There is no sin in him that could cause him to not give the thing promised. There is nothing not even his own character, nor the devil himself, who can stop God from giving what he promises. And so when God says to all who believe in him, to all who receive Christ through faith, will be a child of God, it's not a privilege, it's a right, because rights are from God. And so when God says this this privilege will come to you who believe it's a right. He gave us this right. Notice that the tense of the word gave here again is past tense. It's not that, that all who did receive him who believed in his name will gain the right to become children of God. No, all who would believe have already been given that right. He granted us grace, as we saw last week, from before the foundation of the world. And what is the right that he gave us? He gave us the right to become children of God. Not just to become members of his church. Not just to become worshipers in a chorus. But to become part of his family. To bear his name, to receive him as our father, to become what we were not inherently, and that is children 
of God. These wondrous things that for believers, being part of the family of God is your right. That's a wonderful thing. But sometimes these wonderful things come with hard truths too. I recall that there was a large sign, I think it was actually like a graffitied kind of painting that somebody had painted on the side of, uh, of their house in, uh, in Tucson when we lived there. And it said, uh, either all of us are God's children or none of us are. It said either all of us are God's children or none of us are. Well, the reality is this truth that God gave us the right to become children of God implies that before we were given that right and before we believe, because the right has been given, but we don't actually become children of God until we believe. We were given the right in the past to become, when we believe, children of God. And and what that means is that God gave us a right to become something that we were not. We are not all inherently children of God. In fact, apart from Christ, maybe the sign is right in that it says none of us are. Jesus, when confronting and confronted by the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44, told them that you are of your father, the devil. He was plainly clear as to what their family connection, their family identity was. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Similarly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, speaking to us and what our identity was, B.C., before Christ. Notice, the, again, the past tense nature of Paul's verbs in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's a term that would include both sons and daughters. We were, by identity, dead sons and daughters of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, inherently, we're all born dead, spiritually dead. Children not of God, yes, created by Him, yes, in His image, but so affected by sin that our allegiance is elsewhere. Our nature by identity is that of children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And notice it's not limited. Paul says we all lived that way. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is no one who escapes this identity. But the light shines in the darkness. 
and the darkness has not overcome it. And the light came to earth to become a baby, to take on flesh, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, so that all who believe in him might exercise their right given by God to become children of God. What's your identity today? What's your identity today? Would your life characterize you? Would your friends characterize you as a son or daughter of disobedience? A child of wrath? Or as a son or daughter of God. I pray today that if your identity is not found in God's family, that that will change today. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. Secondly, we see that the gift is this right, this wonderful right to become a child of God. But the source is also really, really important in this text. Where does this right come from? Is it inherent in me? Do I deserve it? Is it because of something I did? Did God give me this right because I believed? Well, John tells us exactly where this source comes from, and he leaves no question about it, but he begins by telling us where the right did not come from. If the gift is the right to become a child of God, the source is God himself who planned and provided salvation. Look with me at verse 13. Here, John says that we have the right to become children of God who were born, that is spiritually born, not of blood. The first place he tells us that the source is, is not of blood. There is no royal bloodline in God's family. There is no national identity, skin color, political party, family privilege, or any other thing connected to earth that is the cause of why God would give you that right. The right is not available to some people of some generations or nationalities or ethnicities or or genders or anything else. As John has already told us, this true light, verse 9, gives light to everyone. This is not everyone meaning all without exception. John is not saying that everybody is going to be saved. You cannot make sense of that within the context here. He is simply saying that the light of Christ indiscriminately shines on all people. All generations, all ethnicities. Wherever your passport says you are from, whatever the color of your skin is, whatever language or tongue or tribe you are a part of, the salvation of God is available to you. And so it does not matter what your bloodline is. It doesn't matter what bloodline you were born into. That does not give you this right. Secondly, he says, not of those who were uh, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not even personal desire that gives us that right. It's not national identity, but it's not even my own personal desire. It's not the will of the flesh that gives me that right, nor is it the will of man. There is no man-made system that will earn you this right. 
There is only one thing that gives us this right, and I love the simplicity of John's answer. No additional prepositional phrases here. Those who have the right to become children of God have the right, not because they were born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but because they were born of God. He and he alone is the source of this right. When most of us were children, we probably said, I'm never going to tell my children because I said so. And then you have children And you begin to understand why I said so is sometimes a really, really good answer. Why do we have the right to become children of God? Because the Father said so. What is the means of this right? What is the means of this right? What what brought it about? And simply the answer to that is Jesus. It is the giving of this right from God, from Jesus, that it even enables us to believe. But Jesus is the means by which this privilege comes. This, this right, rather, comes. He came to his own, verse 11, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to all who did receive Jesus, who all believed in Jesus' name, this is what the whole passage is about. That, that this light, that salvation, that becoming a child, of God, that the forgiveness of sin, that the overcoming of darkness, it all comes from Jesus. He came into the world to shine the light of the truth of who God is and what he has done and to show us how we might become children of God. Notice what verse 14 says, and the word, that is the eternal word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can become children of God because of the Son of God. Not just a Son of God. We have the right to become children of God, but that right comes by means of the Son of God, who never disqualified himself with sin, never made himself a son of disobedience, Never once broke the Father's law or crossed the Father's will. Things which all of us have done and the penalty for which is death. And so deserving no death, he was born so that he might die. He wasn't just a son of obedience. He was the son of obedience who after a lifetime of perfect obedience died in our place living the life we should have lived, dying the death we deserve to die so that we might become children of God and inherit eternal life. And what is our response? How do we appropriate this? How do we take hold of this? Well, there is only two responses to the knowledge of what Jesus has done, and that is that we we receive him through belief, through faith, Or we reject him by unbelief. And this is an overwhelming theme throughout the book of John. But we see this right here in this passage. Verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
God sent this witness named John the Baptist to point out who Jesus was. God sent John, the the apostle here, to write this down so that we might believe. The, the, The commanded response to the knowledge of the Word of God is to believe. We see this also in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Belief is the required means of appropriating the salvation of Jesus Christ, of, of entering into his family. Let me share a few verses with you. John 3, 15 through 17. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 5.24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6.40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John 6.47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. The means of appropriating this salvation of God, this forgiveness of sins, this becoming part of His family, this God-given right to become His child is to believe in His Son. But the opposite, unbelief, rejecting who Christ is, it also comes with a consequence. The consequence for faith is salvation and adoption. The consequence for unbelief is damnation. John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 5.38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. John 6.36, but I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. John 8.45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. John 10.25 and 26, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The purpose of God sending the Son of God to be the light of the world, the purpose for God sending John the Baptist to to testify to the light, the purpose of God's written word and the proclamation of it today and the knowledge and understanding of who Christ is and what he has done is that you might believe. But this belief is not mere intellectual assent. It's it's not mere knowledge. It's not a simple saying, well, I know what Jesus is and what he has done for me. When Scripture speaks of belief and faith, it's a wholehearted reality. See, See, what God is demanding of us this Christmas season is not that we would just know him, but that we would love him that we would delight in Him, that we would enjoy Him. It's wholehearted trust. Listen to the contrast in John 3.19. And this is the judgment. 
This is the judgment upon those who have not believed. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, our problem, it's not just a knowledge problem. The reason we as a church are tasked with sharing the gospel, it's not just a knowledge problem. What we have is a heart problem. What we have is an affection problem. The problem we have is that we love darkness rather than light. And when John and Jesus here calls us to believe, it is not to merely say, oh, well, I still love the darkness, but I know who Jesus is. It's not separated from knowledge. We have to know that we've lived in darkness. We have to know that Jesus is the light. But what is being presented to us today is not just to know who Christ is and what he has done, but to love him for who he is and what he has done. To shift our allegiance and our affections from loving darkness rather than light to loving light in the face of Christ. I try very, very hard to avoid political analogies. But I think there's one that may help us today. And so I'm going to go with a great deal of trepidation. But Brittany Griner has been in the newspapers a lot recently. If you don't know who Brittany Griner is, she was a WNBA player who was outspokenly... Um, oppositional to the playing of the national anthem at basketball games. Not only did she refuse to stand, but she refused to even be on the court. She would wait in the locker room until the national anthem was over, and then she would come out. And I, there's a whole lot of headlines out there that are saying she hates America. I can't find anything that ever said she said she hated America. But she had great problems with the playing of the national anthem because of America's history with slavery. Well, all of us should have a problem with America's history as slavery. But she was outspokenly against the playing of the national anthem. What a wonderful thing that she lives in a country that affords her the right to speak out against her own country without consequence. A right that we should all privilege. And she exercised that right. And then she took a job with a basketball team in Russia. And when she moved to Russia, she illegally brought marijuana products into the country with her. She was arrested and held in prison for alas, the last year. She was recently released as uh, our, our, our president traded a Russian criminal that we had in, uh, in our prisons for Brittany Griner. Now, I'm not going to touch here today with a 10-foot pole who they got and who we got. There's some, there's some big differences there. But by virtue of her being an American, and by virtue of her being even an American who spoke out against some things in her country, she deserved to have 
her country and its leadership seek her release. Because whether you or I agree with her or don't, she still has the right to be a citizen in this country. She still has the right to be protected as a citizen of this country, to be pursued as a citizen of this country, to be rescued as a citizen of this country, and even exercise her right to to speak out against her country. But I can't help but wonder if the willingness of her country to seek her release and a return to her home country, I can't help but wonder Might there be a little bit of appreciation that grows in her for this place? For for this place she calls home? For this country that she's a citizen of? Brothers and sisters, that's all of us. In our sin, we all looked at God and said, curse you, God, and die. And we fled the country. We not only fled the country, we fled his family. We made ourselves through our sin, by nature and by choice, children of wrath. Like prodigal sons saying, God, I just, I want out of here. I don't want you. I just want what you can give me and I'm flying the coop. But he gave us a right. Give us a right to return, to become his children once again. And he gave us this right by eternally declaring that all who would believe have that right, and then by sending his son to be born of a virgin, bearing no sin nature, to live our perfect life, to die the death we deserved to die, to rescue us out of the hellish prison of sin that we rightfully deserved, justly deserved, and put ourselves in. And when God invites us home, when he says, I'll trade the life of my son for your life, and then I will redeem you, and I will clothe you in righteousness, and I will unite you to this thing called the church, and I will present you as a church, as a bride to my son, and he will delight in you and you in him, is not the only appropriate response Gratitude, affection, joy. See, God doesn't want us to come home after sending his son on this rescue mission to redeem us, only to say, well, God, I know I'm home, but I wish I weren't here. I love the darkness more than the light. I still just want what you can provide, but I don't really want. He wants us to be a little more like the prodigal son. Coming home, understanding the benevolence of our father. Who doesn't come to us begrudgingly, but who runs to us. Who embraces us. Who clothes us in his robe and and puts a ring on our finger 
And we come to him and we say, well, I'll go back there because, I mean, I know God is good and gracious, but I'll just be a servant in his house because I've squandered my right as a son. And, and he says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to live in my house as a servant because you are my son, you are my daughter, and you have come home. Oh, the response must be joy. It must be gratitude. It must be love. It must be affection. We hated our creator. We loved darkness. We spoke against him, but he gave us the right to become his children. May we respond not with a a mere intellectual understanding of who he is this Christmas, But may we look at the images of a manger and sing these Christmas songs. May we believe. May we be filled with affection for the God who traded his son to purchase our freedom. If you have not believed today, may you do so. May you not let another day go by without expressing your affection for God, a turning from your sin, and a receiving of his forgiveness, not by mere understanding of what Christ did, but by believing and trusting in who he is and what he has done and the reason he came as a child that we celebrate at Christmas. Heavenly Father, you have purchased us by the life of your Son, out of the prison, the hellish prison of our sin, that we were not imprisoned in unjustly, but that we were imprisoned in justly and rightfully. And yet for all who believe, for all who have received Christ, you have given us the right, the right to become children of you. May we understand our identity in Christ. May we not merely know who he is and what he has done, but may we trust who he is and what he has done. And may there be a deep and growing affection in us for you and for your glory and for our good. And Lord, may we be quick to announce that salvation, that message to the world around us. Lord, it is not a message that is intended to be hidden. The call is to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Make us not a silent, hidden, quiet people. But may we be vocal about the gospel, about what you have done for us in Christ. May we go tell it on the mountain that all may believe in who he is and what Christ has done. May that be at the center of all of our Christmas celebrations this year. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.